0: You're listening to the Magnum version of the Savage Lovecast, www.savagelovecast.com.
1: If you're stuck in a relationship quandary, or if you're looking for sexual harmony,
2: well, there's nothing
1: you can't
2: ask on the Savage Lovecast.
3: We can add talking to kids about porn or talking to parents about talking to kids about porn, to The long list of things they do right in New Zealand. Under the leadership of Prime Minister Jacinda Ardern, they banned semi automatic weapons of war. They did it after a mass shooting. And then they confiscated 50,000 of those weapons, weapons that are now illegal there and should already be illegal here. And they did it in a month. They've upped the minimum wage. They've had universal health care for decades. They have a plan, a real one, to go carbon neutral. And under Ardern's leadership, they brought coronavirus under control, and they've been able to return to some semblance of normal life down there. Ugh. Reading about New Zealand is really the best argument for amending the U.S. Constitution to allow people who weren't born in the toxic shithole we call home to become president. If someone were to launch and amend that shit and draft Jacinda movement, I would donate. All right, in this ad that went viral last week, maybe you already saw it, it's just one part of an internet safety campaign aimed at kids called Keep It Real Online. Two naked porn stars turn up on the porch of a suburban home to talk to the mom of a kid who has been watching them online. I'm going to play the whole thing. It's only a minute long.
4: Hiya, I'm Sue. This is Derek. We're here because your son just looked us up online, you know, to watch us.
5: Matt! Matt, darling, there's some people here to see you. So he watches you online. Yeah, you know, on his
4: laptop.
6: iPad PlayStation. Mm -hmm.
4: His phone, your phone.
6: Smart TV projector. Yeah,
4: anyway, we usually perform for adults, but your son's just a kid. He might not know how relationships actually work. We don't even talk about consent, do we? Now we just get straight to it.
7: Yeah, and I'd never act like that in real
5: life.
4: (laughs) No. Hey Maddie! You're right.
8: Okay, Sandra, stay calm. You know what to do here. All right, Maddie. It sounds like it's time to have a talk about the difference between what you see online and real life relationships. No judgment. Many young
3: Kiwis are using porn to learn about sex. Keep it real online. Get help and advice at keepitrealonline.govt.nz. That was just the audio, of course. Do look it up online and watch it. The Guardian reports that the ad was created in response to a study that showed most of New Zealand's young people were learning about sex online by watching porn. When we talk about this as a problem, and it is a problem that young people are getting their sex education from porn, most people identify porn as the problem and not the real problem here, which is that sex education in most places is either non-existent or completely inadequate. Instead of doing something about that, instead of demanding comprehensive sex education that centers pleasure and reality, people would rather fantasize about a world where we've banned porn. Get rid of the porn. That is not going to happen. The genie is out of the bottle. The genie has lubed the bottle up, and the genie is using the bottle as a penetration toy. But parents would rather talk with each other about banning porn than talk with their kids about sex. And talking to your kids about sex means talking to your kids about porn. It's a conversation that no responsible parent can duck, and New Zealand is using humor and porn stars or actors pretending to be porn stars, to get parents to stop ducking that conversation. And it's a conversation that can be had, like the mom says at the end of the ad, without judgment. But we need to have it with some urgency and humor. Humor always helps. All right, coming up on today's show, tons of your cues, lots of my A's, and joining us in the magnum edition of the Savage Lovecast that you can subscribe to at savagelovecast.com. Twice as much show, more guests, no ads. Dr. Tammy Rowan joins us. She's an OBGYN and an educator, and she has studied pubic hair and its removal and the consequences of its removal. All that coming up on today's show.
6: Hi, Dan and team. I do have a quarantine sex story. It involves no sex, but that's kind of the point. I found myself in the position of a lot of poly people where I'm alone in lockdown and they're together, the couple that I play with. They have been queening me hard for weeks. They constantly send me videos and texts about what they're getting up to, occasionally live, which is really something. And all I can do is sit at home on my sad little dildo and cry and it's fucking amazing there's never been a better time to be a cut queen humiliation pig i hope that all the listeners who are suffering from deprivation could find that side of themselves too it's so rewarding best of luck to everyone out there
3: thank you for calling and sharing and congrats to all the cut queen humiliation pigs out there this is your time and i hope you're enjoying it as much as our caller. We've been running these quarantine sex stories at the top of the show for months now, and we want to keep doing it, but we also want to start to open this up to people just to call in and share a success story. So much of the show are the face plants and the disasters and the three ways that went badly, and we think that that can create, we've talked about how that creates, a distorted impression of people's sex lives and sexual adventures. So if you have a sexual adventure, something that worked for you that you would like to share, you are invited along with everybody also being invited to continue to share their quarantine stories. Something you want to share, minute, minute and a half tops, give us a call, share your quarantine sex story or your just success story. And we will start opening the show with both.
1: Hey, Dan. um,
4: Not a quarantine sex story, unfortunately, since I live alone and have been now celibate forcibly for several months. But today I was at a large hardware retailer in a large urban city and I saw a guy kind of out of the corner of my eye with a kind of funny shaped mask on his face and I couldn't figure it out and I didn't want to make eye contact with him because he was kind of staring at me anyway I finally caught a glance and it was a women's thong on his face and a couple people when I posted this on Instagram were like oh yeah that's a thing I didn't know that was a thing is that a thing it's awful I really really don't like
9: it
3: the actor and producer and director Emerson Collins made a viral video where he transformed a jockstrap into a face mask in two or three easy steps. And if it's okay for gay dudes to go out wearing jockstraps over their faces, which is I think inherently slightly eroticized, I guess it's okay for straight dudes to go out wearing thongs over their faces. You know, whatever's handy and whatever protects other people and yourself I can get behind, and if it gives somebody a a little bit of a not-so-secret thrill at this moment, you know, the world is such a dark and gloomy place that I think we all need whatever thrills we can come by. So long as somebody doesn't involve you directly, they don't ask you what you think of their thong, or they don't ask you to take a picture, or anything else, I think I will allow it.
2: Hello, Dan, 27-year-old gay man living on the East Coast. I have a question that I've been wondering for a very long time. So, let's just say, for the sake of gay men, that there's fifty percent tops and fifty percent bottoms. I know there's verse, but just just for the sake of this question, but there's some people that identify total bottoms or total tops. So, I think about straight men, and I know we can talk about dom and sub and tops and bottoms in that sense as well. But I think about, you know, how could all Straight men be tops, and I kind of feel bad for them because obviously they don't know the world of wonder of what it's like to be a bottom. So I know there's women that pick men, things like that. But what do you really think?
8: uh, Is what is
2: this percentage of straight men like? Are they forced into like top hood? Is that a thing? And I so I I feel bad. So that's I don't know. I I ask this to straight guys all the time. Like, could you be a bottom? And they're always saying, no, no, no. And I know there's a stereotype and the stigma, things like that. But, you know,
3: Dan, are all straight men tops? No, not all straight men are tops. You yourself mentioned straight men who like to get pegged. And there is such a thing, and you encountered out there in the wilds of gay land, such a thing as a submissive top, someone who is kind of a bottomy top. They fuck their male partners sort of service tops. They fuck the power bottom who enjoys getting fucked and being demanding about how they get fucked. And I'm sure there are straight guys out there who tap into that kind of bottom energy, even if they are doing the penetrating. That said, I do think most straight guys sort of default top. That's why it's often later in a straight guy's sexual life or their growth or their explorations, where they begin to experiment with being penetrated themselves, because to be the penetrator is the straight guy default setting. That's what can make pegging so exciting for a lot of opposite sex straight-ish couples is that it inverts those roles and those expectations in a way that is transgressive and therefore highly arousing. So yeah, there are straight bottom dudes out there, the odds that one of your straight friends would fess up to that if indeed he was a straight bottom, when you blurted that out, when you're out to drinks with a crowd of your friends, pretty low. You know, part of what makes that transgressive part of being the straight bottom or the straight guy who gets his ass fucked is often that this is a secret dimension of your sexuality. It's not something that people know or assume or can perceive just from casually interacting with you. It's something that you share privately and you reveal about yourself at a moment when you're making yourself vulnerable to your partner who's about to or regularly pegs you so you may already know some straight male bottoms you may have already put this very question to some straight male bottoms who are your friends they're just not going to tell you about it that's part of what makes it exciting for them is that it's not something that their gay friends know or need to know
4: hi jan nancy in the check savvy you, i have a quarantine sex question, but kind of different than what you guys might think. Um, I'm 25. I live in Chicago, and I obviously haven't had sex since the shelter-in-place started here. I had sex the weekend before, (laughs) and um, I'm on Zoloft, so I have a pretty low libido as a side effect of the medication, and as a result, well, I live alone. I live in a one-bedroom, and I I haven't wanted to fuck, like, at all. Like, in the beginning of quarantine, I masturbated a bit, but now I really don't, and I'm kind of not bothered by it, and I'm worried that, like, once it's safe to go out and socialize and date again, I'm just really not going to be in the mood to fuck, ever. <laughs> so... Opposite of the people who are like really quarantine horny, really. And just wondering if you have any tips on how I can kind of get my groove back or how to increase my libido once quarantine's over.
3: Zoloft is an SSRI selective serotonin reuptake inhibitor. Uh, people who are depressed, people of OCD, anxiety, often are prescribed. Zoloft, one of the known side effects of Zoloft is it can crater your libido in a very serious way. And that can have knock-on effects in someone's life that maybe aren't as problematic or as big of an issue for them as the depression or the OCD or the anxiety that prompted them to go on Zoloft in the first place, but can be unpleasant, particularly if they're partnered. You aren't partnered right now. It may be a bit of relief for you, caller, right now that you aren't so horny thanks to the Zoloft, you aren't at home dying for physical contact that may be risky uh, to engage in at the moment. So maybe there's an upside here, but in the long term, this is going to be a bigger problem for you, particularly if you do want to have an active and pleasurable sex life and you would like to have a romantic and sexual partner again in the future. So I would encourage you to do what people who's Libidos have been cratered by these sorts of drugs are encouraged to do, which is talk to your doctor and advocate for yourself with your doctor and experiment with other SSRIs that may not have the same impact on your libido. Lower doses, perhaps, of Zoloft may allow you the benefits of the drug without the side effects, the sexual side effects, but you're going to have to really scream and yell at your doctor. Sometimes doctors do not take sexual side effects seriously, or a doctor who's been there with you when you're struggling with very serious or debilitating depression or paralyzing anxiety may think that you ultimately benefited and and you shouldn't be complaining about something as quote unquote trivial as having no libido. But it's not trivial. And you may, if you're with a sex negative doctor who won't prioritize finding the right balance of SSRIs that allow you to to function and allow you to have a libido, you may have to find a doctor who will prioritize your libido and your sex life alongside whatever treatments you might need for depression or anxiety or OCD or whatever else. So don't think you need to be in a huge, terrible rush right now to do this, but you can at least begin the conversations with your doctor, figure out whether he's the kind of doctor or she's the kind of doctor or they're the kind of doctor who's going to take sexual side effects seriously And if not, find a new doctor.
5: Hey, Dan. I'm married and live in Texas with my husband and two small children age four and seven months old. My mother is 61, lives in Pennsylvania, and was scheduled to come visit us and stay for two weeks at the end of June. She's had this plan for a few months, having canceled our previous plans to visit because of COVID. I specifically told her that I wanted her to self-quarantine for at least two weeks prior to coming to my home. Here's where my question comes in. She takes a yearly beach trip to Galveston with her girlfriends every year, and I thought that this would be canceled because of everything going on. I specifically asked her about it, but she did end up going at the beginning of this month with six other women, all who live in various places with their spouses. She directly lied to me about going, about how many people would be going, and didn't leave a two-week window between the trips. Furthermore, her and my four-year-old are very close, and I feel like she used my kids to manipulate me into getting her way, because if I canceled her trip to my house now... Then I'm the asshole keeping her from her grandkids. I feel incredibly disrespected and manipulated, and she refuses to apologize or acknowledge she did anything wrong. What's your take? Am I the asshole or is what she did as fucked up as I think it is?
3: COVID infection rates are spiking in Texas. They have the highest number of hospitalized patients now than ever before during this pandemic. So, yeah, what your mother did was very deeply fucked up. It's lying to you. Not necessarily manipulating your kid, but it's the lying to you. She knew that she wouldn't have your consent to come and stay if you had been informed. So your mother really made an end run around, you know, the principle of informed consent. And so you should cancel this fucking trip. You should tell her she is not welcome, that she needs to quarantine for two weeks per your request, per your demand, if she wants to come and stay in your house and see your kids. Period. The end. And maybe that will leverage out of your mother's mouth the apology that you're owed and you deserve. But you're going to have to stand your ground and you're going to have to put up with a tantrum, most likely from your mother. But as you may recall, or as you may know, as the parent of young children, tantrums continue so long as they work. If your mother is threatening you with an outburst right now that is really cowing you really making you back off and allow her to come and visit you despite her violating, you know, the principle of informed consent, your right to know, your your, your reasonable request that she quarantine for two weeks before coming into your home and visiting you guys, well, yeah, then uh, fuck her. Mom doesn't get to come visit. And you'll just have to endure the tantrum. And once mom sees that tantrums don't work, maybe mom will remember that she didn't allow you to get away with tantrums when you were a toddler. The tantrums will cease, and the visit can be rescheduled.
1: Hi, Dan. I am a thirty year old cis female um bisexual calling in for some advice about my partner and our relationship. My partner has recently come out as trans they identify as they them currently and are talking about going through hormone replacement therapy soon. To also add to the mix, we have a four-month-old baby boy that we um, had during COVID (laughs) or close to it. So I've been home with baby and recently went back to work this last week. So it's been a very crazy past few months. I think with having the new baby, it helped my partner to come to terms with their identity. A little bit of background, we've been together for 10 years and married for three. A year into our relationship, they confided in me that they cross-dressed and so for the last you know, nine years, they've cross-dressed and brought up before that they'd be interested in Um, facial feminization surgery or top surgery, but both times when those things have come up, I've kind of shut down and been really scared of it, mostly scared of losing the person whom I first started my relationship with. So I think that scared them and turned them off of really seeing who they really are um, and exploring it further. But I think that becoming a parent has really encouraged them to just live their truth, and they are currently going to therapy, and so am I, and we're looking into couples therapy as well. Um, I guess my question is, how can I be really good support to my partner? What will our relationship look like going forward, just in general, what should we kind of be thinking about or expecting, or what should I be expecting. Also, how to come out to both of our families. Neither of them will be very supportive, I I expect. Um, they're both very conservative families, so how do we navigate that? And also, I haven't come out to anybody in my family except for my sister about being bisexual. What are some resources and how can I be supportive? What does our relationship look like going forward? And how to be good parents through all of this as well. How do we work in the lack of sex because of our postpartum life? (laughs) So many questions. So, Dan, if you could please help us out, we would really appreciate it.
3: Make no sudden moves. You have a four-month-old infant at home. That's probably what I would have advised your partner if they had reached out to me. Make no sudden moves. You have a four-month-old infant at home. Now is probably not the right time to announce this. But if you feel that becoming a parent clarified these issues for your partner in a way that made them undelayable, made this announcement, they're coming out as trans, something they had to do in this moment, hopefully also had to do not just for themselves but to be the partner you need them to be and the parent – Your child, your infant needs them to be, then it has my blessing. Not that it needs my blessing. They have my blessing. Not that they needed my blessing. But right now, you both have to focus on the infant that you've got at home. Resources for people whose partners have come out as trans or non-binary are out there. HRC dot org slash resources has a bunch of resources. There's a website called transgenderpartners.com with resources for partners as well. Those resources are easily found and they're out there. But I Googled them for you and you're welcome. But right now, you both are involved in the exhausting relay race that is getting a newborn from out of the vaginal canal to toddler. And that has to be that that relay race has to be your primary focus doesn't have to be your only focus. You don't have to be monomaniacally focused on your infant when you're new parents, but they are an infant is going to eat up most of your focus, most of your time, most of your physical energy. And you know, my advice always to to new parents is to just relax into that and be on the lookout for resentment. Make sure that everybody's doing their fair share of the childcare that they are helping to run 50% of that relay race. But acknowledge that sex is going to suffer, that you're going to plop down on the couch at the end of a long day together and zone out in front of the TV. And neither of you, but particularly the person who's doing most of the sort of physical parenting, often the person doing the breastfeeding, isn't going to be interested in other physical intimacy, even sometimes touch at the end of those days. And rather than look at each other and say, our days will always be thus and this is my life now forever – You need to look at each other and really articulate. You need to say this out loud. It will not always be like this. I will not always be this exhausted and touched out and we will not be so just wrung out at the end of the day. So let's look forward to those days when we have more energy for each other rather than resent, you know, allow resentment to seize us now that'll make reconnecting when we have that space and time and energy a little bit down the road, like a year from now, impossible. As for coming out to your conservative families, well, now is a good time maybe to test the waters by coming out to your family as bi in advance, perhaps, of your partner coming out to them as trans. That will hopefully make your family see your partner coming out as trans as less of a threat to your marriage and your relationship and less of an imposition on you. You know, sometimes people's partners come out as trans and suddenly, you know, a straight-identified woman whose husband... This man that she married comes out as a a, a trans woman is in the position of having to end the relationship or shift their identity as well. Shift her identity as well and really you know, begin to identify or be perceived as a lesbian. And some women are able to make that jump. Some women have a more fluid sexuality or some women who are in those relationships were bi and it's not that big a leap. But for others, that's an impossible – transition for them to make. Doesn't sound like that's going to be a problem for you. You don't talk about your partner transitioning as a problem for your sex life. Is the reason you're not having sex right now. The reason you're not having sex right now is you're both exhausted and your partner who's just made this enormous announcement is probably a little emotionally exhausted as well. So circling all the way back to what I said at the start, Make no sudden moves. Tap into the online resources that are out there and available to you right now. Find a support group online where you can talk and you can share. And your partner should also avail themselves of those resources that are out there for them. And when the time is right, tell your family you're by so that when the time is right for your partner to start coming out to your family and theirs as trans, you'll have some sense about how coming out is going to be received by your conservative families. Anyway, thank you for calling. It sounds like you're in a better position than many spouses emotionally when their partners announce that they're trans, even spouses who often wind up staying in the relationship and are happy that they stayed in the relationship. Their initial reaction is often a little bit more panicked and -hmm. and, and distraught than your initial reaction. So you too are further along, further ahead, in a better position to navigate this and survive it as a couple and as partners and parents than many. But I have to say, as a general note, four months after the child that you wanted and planned for and had together is born is a terrible time to make huge announcements like, I'm trans or I want an open relationship and I'm not equating these things or I took a job on the other side of the world and we are moving away from your family and support systems whether you like it or not. Four months after the birth of a new child, the child that both partners wanted, is a time to really, I think, knuckle under and get through it. And, you know, right after the birth of a new child is just not a good time for thunderbolts and ultimatums. It's not fair To the person on the receiving ends of those thunderbolts and ultimatums, typically, usually not a problem for this caller. And I'm really happy that it's not a problem for this caller. And that's good to see and challenges my preconceptions because when I first started listening to your question, I was filled with anxiety for you. But as a general rule, new infant at home, suck it up, whatever it is.
6: Hi, mid-30s bisexual female from Texas here long-time listener, first-time caller. I just broke up with my partner of nine months for so many reasons. She's struggled with ADHD all of her life, and while medicated, she has anger issues and abandonment issues, and she was quick to say whatever popped into her head without really taking a moment to filter or buffer the words. Of course, our relationship was magical at first, filled with new relationship energy and excitement and white-hot mutual attraction. As the weeks and months ticked by, however, she showed me her true colors as we settled into a routine, as so many couples do. I really am not one to play the abuse card, but I truly believe that I was the victim of verbal abuse, both in this relationship and also during my childhood from one of my parents. I certainly was the recipient of so many mean and nasty things that she said to me that never needed to be said. The thing about words is that you can't unsay them or take them back. Dan, if you or any of your callers have any advice for me on how to pick up the pieces of my broken heart, I would greatly appreciate it.
3: Hey, it's Dan Savage returning your call.
6: Oh my God. How are you? I'm doing okay. Good. 206 number. There you go. <laughs> so you really do call people back.
3: <laughs> I, I really do. I really do call people back, but we need people to pick up. We're always the unknown number. I never answer my phone when it's an unknown number, but hopefully people who've called into the show and asked me to call them back know to answer the unknown 206s, which is where I'm calling from.
6: Yes. Well, thank you so much for the callback. Um, I'm doing okay. Um,
3: okay. You sound a little better.
6: I. It was a rough weekend two weekends ago, um, and I I cried a lot and I felt my feelings and
3: That's I've been doing cream. a lot of
6: cleaning and a lot of writing.
3: <laughs> I hope you had some, you know, usually my, my prescription is feel your feelings, eat some ice cream, get some exercise, hang out with friends virtually, maybe at the moment, um, and, and lean on them. It just sucks. Like, there's no magic shortcut through the pain. You just got to feel it. And learn the lessons, yeah. you know, that doesn't mean you should, this doesn't mean this, you know, this relationship with this person who was charismatic and attractive and made you feel good and excited. Doesn't mean you should avoid charismatic, attractive people in the future who make you feel good and excited, right? It's just this person's qualities came bundled with a bunch of negatives. And as soon as you identified them, you cut your losses and left, you know, hopefully with some good memories and of good experiences, but with an awareness that you couldn't make it work with this person because they're damaged, Correct. right? They're not a good working order if they're lashing out at you that the, the way that they were.
6: Yeah, uh, you're exactly right. Um, and that's on them. them. Yeah, that's on them. I, I can't fix.
3: Right. We, we, we can't f- fix people. I, I mean, I think it's a, it's a lesson that so many of us have to learn through, through painful experience and then over the course of our lives, we often have to relearn that lesson because we just want to think we're magic. or that You know, that's the b- one of the lies that's sold to us about love is that it's somehow transformative and the love of a good person can help a damaged person heal. And it's just, you know, I think incrementally around the margins, love can make us better, not because the other person's radioactive in some positive way that you know makes us you know better or improve but because we struggle to be better for that person to earn that person and sometimes you're with somebody who's damaged and you're able to love them and they're not able to do the work they need to do on themselves to to be the kind of person you can stay in a relationship with for the long term that doesn't mean the love you felt for them while you were with them was a lie or it didn't benefit them somehow but we have to recognize the limits there's a kind of narcissism in there you know of our own where you know why can't i love this person better why can't i love this person why isn't my love chemotherapy that cures them of whatever this cancer is that's eating away at our relationship and we just have to recognize our the limits our limits loves limits and find somebody that we can be with who can be loved and love in return even if that person is still going to cause you pain at times because they will
6: right i uh I, well, I definitely reached my limit. I did.
3: And you loved yourself enough to, to, to end a relationship that you probably had a lot of other things, good things going for it that you're sad about missing.
6: Oh, I absolutely am. Because, uh, I, you know, anybody that stays in a relationship that is dysfunctional as this one was, Mm -hmm. uh, would probably agree with me that you wouldn't stay if it sucked all the time.
3: Right. Right. You know, that you often hear, you know, know, it sounds like this relationship was emotionally abusive in a way that was unacceptable to you. But you often hear this from people who are in abusive relationships, like when they're lovely, they're so lovely. Well, that's the compensation and that's a strategy to keep you there to to be punched, you know, emotionally or physically, you know, to keep you hanging out for the abuse. That person is going to crank up the loveliness and charm just long enough so that you're vulnerable to them when they – want to rip into you again.
6: Yes, that that pretty much sums it up.
3: <laughs> and it's, it's often easier to, to spot that dynamic from the outside than from the inside. Like when you're in it, it's sometimes hard to see it, which is why we need friends and families and support systems around us to help us identify it. It's why abusers, emotional, physical, otherwise, it's why they often move to cut us off from our support systems because they don't want our friends and family pointing out to us the ways in which this relationship is unhealthy or toxic or dysfunctional.
6: Yeah, there was a lot of side picking. It, like, you need to be on my side. Yeah. She would say that to me. Yeah,
3: not good. I, I do want not to say... a big old red flag. It is, it is, you know, one of the biggest and, and one of often the earliest. Like, I don't like your friends and, you know, your friends don't like me and therefore you have to, you know, you have to be on our side, is us against the world, us against your mom, all that kind of bullshit. I do want to stand up for dysfunctional relationships because I think... In some ways, every relationship is dysfunctional because people aren't perfect and no two people are perfect for each other. It's just the amount of dysfunction that you're willing to, that that you have a, you reasonably can be expected to tolerate. You know, another person's failings or foibles or their patterns or their insecurities. There are bearable ones and we have hopefully ourselves bearable ones or ones that our partners will bear under for us. Um, so, you know, sometimes I see people end relationships because they're identifying dysfunctions that to me seem minor, that aren't emotional abuse, that aren't physical abuse, um, that are just, you know, the kind of daily grind annoyances that we all have to put up with for companionship if that's something we want in our lives. So I, I don't want people to, to over diagnose dysfunction when sometimes what can, you know, is what people think is a dysfunction is just you know, the normal kind of grind of, of, of two people trying to make it work together.
6: No, this was not the 0.72 rounded up to one. This was somebody who was gaslighting me and would work really hard to smooth things over. And then it was cyclic. And I told her it was cyclic. And, uh, you know, after so many cycles through, mm-hmm. I just snapped and said, we're done. Good. And of course, it was a hot mess when I called, um, but yeah, I'm doing better.
3: Good. I'm glad. I'm glad you're doing better. And, and I want to highlight that thing that you just said about the cyclic nature of this. That is often, you know, that pattern where you know there is the you know uh, the abuse comes, or the you know the things that can't be unsaid are said that are incredibly painful. And will rattle around in your head, you know, and then they turn on the charm and they win you back and things are good for a while. And then you're back in that same place over and over again. And if you are in a relationship where that pattern emerges, that itself is a red flag. It's not an early red flag because it takes time for that pattern to establish itself and become evident. But once that pattern's evident, man, if you didn't spot other red flags or the other red flags didn't cause you to end the relationship, that one should
6: definitely cyclic.
3: I hope you have friends in your corner right now. I hope you're reconnecting with the people that you had cut off.
6: I I sure do. I I have reconnected with uh, several several good people from my past already.
3: Good. I'm really glad to hear that. Sometimes people after they cut people off are are too embarrassed to reach out again because they don't want to hear I told you so. But you know what? Sometimes it's good for the soul to hear I told you so.
6: No, I need those those affirmations. And some of it is I told you so. And some of it is you deserve so much better.
3: Well, that's usually what the I told you so is, you know, I told you so at the time that this was, you know, this person was terrible because I didn't think you deserved to be with a terrible person. So the I told you so is also a kind of photo negative. You deserved better all along.
6: Yeah, that's exactly what's
3: happening. I'm glad I called you because I was really worried for you from how you sounded. And it sounds like you're in a much better spot now.
6: It was a pretty bad day a couple of Fridays ago. But yes, definitely uh, more good days since then thank you
3: you're welcome good luck
6: thanks so much have a great day
3: you too bye
9: hi dan i have a two-part question so first of all i've been dating this guy for a few months now since like december so we get along really well um the sex is really great the problem with that is that um his penis is like very large and while it's enjoyable it's hard to keep up with my libido because I want to have sex more than I'm physically able to. The second part of the question is that, and I don't know if it's related, but I'm starting to see some patterns like that maybe he's not like liberal or like, I don't want to say the word woke, but as I thought that he was, like he's said some things that could be interpreted as sexist or even in some cases racist for context. He's from a country in the middle East where politics and things are really different, but like he gets kind of frustrated with me and wants to change a subject. If I start to talk about politics, I don't know if it's just like big dick energy because he really, I mean, he really does have a big dick, but like, I'm, I don't know if I should stay with him or if like, if this is just cultural differences or what he's not mean or anything like that. Like he's always been really sweet to me, but I don't know when to draw the line between like cultural differences and determining if he's just an asshole. I don't know.
3: Sexism, racism, antisemitism, semitism Homophobia, wearing MAGA hats, none of that gets a pass because of cultural differences. If he's an asshole, if he hates people, if he has retrograde attitudes, bigoted attitudes, I think he gets shown the door wherever he's from, wherever he's going. I don't think you have to drill down or interrogate all of your casual sex partners or people you're casually seeing or put them under oath and depose them Looking for you know politically incorrect thoughts or thought patterns or or biases or attitudes, but if somebody's just offering up shit that means they're sexist, racist, anti-Semitic, homophobic, anti-black, whatever, yeah, I think you should stop sitting on that big dick. As for your question, you want to have sex more often, but you're not always physically able to, and how do you accommodate this dick? Well, I would encourage you if having sex with this person, if you continue to have sex with this person. And, you know, sometimes you can have sex with somebody where you're not on the same page politically or they're not as woke as you are and you become the incentive for them to unlearn some of their bigotry. That sometimes sleeping with somebody who's a little bit more politically progressive than you are and is willing to engage with you can open your eyes and prompt a person to reevaluate their assumptions, their biases, their whatever, their political positions, even their sometimes their hatreds. So I'm not entirely or always opposed, you know, to that kind of imbalance in a relationship where somebody's further along, where somebody who supports Medicare for all is fucking somebody who supports private insurance or whatever that I guess more minor example than I just offered might be. But yeah, sorry, I'm circling back to if he's a bigot, you shouldn't fuck him and he doesn't get a pass because he's from the Middle East. But if you want to keep fucking him and maybe help him evolve and you want to keep sitting on that big dick, I would encourage you if you know every time you, ha- you fuck him, it, like you're so physically worn out that you can't fuck him again so soon. Not to center so much PIV that you can have sex and engage in sex play with this guy that if your pussy is wrecked from the last time he fucked you, well, take your pussy out of the equation that time. That may be another way you can help him grow, challenge him. If Sex for him is always PIV and consenting to penetration is always expected of you. If you're going to be intimate, if you two are going to hook up, well, you might want to push back there as well. But sometimes sex with you when you hook up is going to be oral. Sometimes sex with you when you hook up is going to be you fuck his ass so he can see what it's like to be on the other end of penetrative sex or just mutual masturbation and rolling around and a different kind of intimacy that gives your Poor, battered, wrecked pussy. The break. It needs. We don't often answer emails sent to me at the column here on the podcast, but I'm going to make an exception for this one. Email from an older reader, after years of seeing only shaved pussies in the wild, the last two women I dated were rocking a full bush. I guess some people didn't get the memo. Ladies and gentlemen, it's 2020. Keep those pussies, balls, taints, and assholes smooth. Dan, is there a tactful way for me to suggest to a woman that she shave or wax? All right, I am making an exception for this letter because I've wanted to have a conversation with Dr. Tammy Rowan for a while, an assistant professor in the department of OBGYN at UCSF. I've wanted to have her on the show to talk about this issue, the issue being grooming. Dr. Rowan is a board member and former education chair of the International Society for the Study of Women's Sexual Health and an associate editor to the Journal of Sexual Medicine. Hey, Dr. Rowan, how you doing?
7: I'm good. Thanks for having me. What an interesting email that is.
3: <laughs> it is an interesting email, isn't it? You, before we get into the, the issue that this person raises, which I think is about expectations, uh, why did this take off? You studied this. You studied grooming. You published. You're the lead author on a study titled Pubic Hair Grooming Prevalence and Motivation Among Women in the United States this has been going on for decades. I've been answering letters from people who were shocked to find that their adult human female or male partner had pubic hair for 25 years. It does seem to be the expectation people come to partner sex with now that there's not going to be any pubic hair. How did that take root? Well, I think, I think it's an expectation in certain
7: groups and that was actually why I got so interested in this, you know, as a, you know, as a gynecologist, I see, um, you know, naked women, you know, I've seen thousands and thousands of vulvas, and I see a huge variety. And I was really struck over the last several years how many people would apologize to me in my office for maybe not being groomed or their appearance or all kinds of things. And I, I was kind of shocked by that because, you know, it's a safe space. I'm a physician. I am an obstetrician as well as a gynecologist, which means I've seen all kinds of things come out of vaginas. Um <laughs> And I was also really struck a couple of times when I was in the operating room with really um, with teenagers who were not sexually active. And there was one time where, you know, the OR staff, these are well-meaning professional people. They just mentioned not in any judgmental way about a teenager who was ungroomed and how they weren't used to seeing that. And this was, you know, a 14 year old, non-sexually active girl. Um, and I, I was really kind of taken aback. And so when I had the opportunity study the kind of prevalence, um, you know, I jumped on it. And what we found was that it's actually really culturally, I would say culturally based. It's very different um, in different demographic groups, which means that there are certain um, groups of, you know, people, mainly, you know, those who identify as women, and this is my area of expertise is women, not men, um, who groom, but it's not everybody. I mean, that's why I'm so kind of struck by this idea that, oh, it's 2020, everybody grooms. That's actually not the case.
3: Mm-hmm but people but people do have you know i hear i hear this a lot from people that they're shocked to to meet up with somebody to go to bed with somebody who has pubic hair and and sometimes i think there's a parallel here with uh circumcised versus uncircumcised penises where people feel that they have a you know they believe they have a preference for circumcised penises because it's all they've ever encountered it's all they've been offered uh and then they encounter an uncircumcised penis and they're shocked and that's just about prevalence shaping preference is it not
7: I think that's actually very true, and I actually think it is a good corollary because for anyone who's you know used to seeing an uncircumcised penis, and then they go and they experience a circumcised penis, uh, you know, I know that I'm speaking here as a physician, but I will say as a woman, um, the first time I encountered one, I was like, wow, that's what foreskin is supposed to do, and I understood in kind of a whole new way what the foreskin was there for, you know, as an, you know, adult woman. Um, And one of the things about PETA care is actually think it's very, a similar idea here is that PETA care has a function, just like foreskin has a function, PETA care does as well. Um, And it cushions the vulva. um, It protects it from kind of, you know, things on the outside. And I've actually seen women who have removed all of their pubic hair who actually had decreased orgasmic abilities. And it actually makes physiologic sense. The skin gets thicker. There's nothing, there's no barrier there to protect it. That's just one example
3: no barrier of a complication. No barrier the clitoris or is this about the vulva?
7: The, the vulva and the labia. So the mm. skin gets thicker, including the clitoris, right? Every, every vulva is a little bit different. And so if the clitoral hood um, gets a little bit thicker and there can be exposure of the clitoris as well, the skin gets thicker and less sensitive.
3: Well, that people talk about that with circumcised penises, that if your penis the – the glands of the penis is always exposed to you know, underwear, cotton underwear rubbing against it or jeans if you're freeballing rubbing against it. It's going to be desensitized and maybe that's why some guys have a harder time who are cut – uh climaxing or need to like bring in their right hand toward the end of intercourse to to get themselves over the edge to that point of orgasmic inevitability because they're the heads of their penises have been desensitized
7: absolutely or they need extra lubrication i mean the way that the you know i know we're ta- we're not here talking about penises but i you know they're interesting <laughs> to me as I do,
3: well i do keep bringing um, penises up though it's a it's a bad habit of mine <laughs>
7: Okay. But, you know, as, you know, again, you can, you know, know when that you're retracting the foreskin that, you know, I'm like, oh, there's a purpose. It's there. You don't necessarily need as much lubrication. There's all kinds of things that the foreskin does. But there are other things that, you know, that, um, pubicare does for women. And the removal of it is not a benign process. There's risks associated with it. Um, not just the kind of physical risks associated, but the cost associated with it, the Mm -hmm. kind of, you know, perpetual need to keep doing it um, as well. And, and the anxiety around what it looks like at, you know, um, to, to a partner. And so that's why I think that, you know, we have to remember that not everybody grooms. And my research really showed that, you know, historically, when anyone looked at grooming, it was always these convenient samples of college students. If you look at most sex research, it's people in universities, you're just querying, you know, all the people at the university. And that's not what I wanted to do. We really looked at, you know, a nationally representative sample of women ages 18 to 64. And we both looked at the kind of prevalence and reasons why people were grooming, but also genital self-image. Um, and we used a validated scale for this. And we found that there, you know, how people feel about their genitals and also those who groom, it's, it's very demographic specific.
3: So who's, who's likely, which demo is likeliest to groom, to, to remove their pubic hair?
7: White, young, educated women. So, you know, women under 45 and then certainly between 18 and 35 are really the highest uh likelihood those that are above a college uh, education um are more likely to groom and a lot of times you know people would assume that it has to do with sexual activity but again our research we we were very careful to kind of control for all these you know what we call confounding factors things that would play a role you know like age like income like education and we found that it actually didn't have to do with sexual activity we were very specific on what kind of sexual activity were they engaging in. And when we controlled for everything, it didn't seem to be specific for that. What was very, very um, relevant was whether or not their partner wanted them to groom and whether or not their partner themselves groomed.
3: Do you think pornography has played a role in a person's expectations around grooming? Because it is ubiquitous in porn, uh, removing pubic hair. And, and, you know, some people claim that this is about making women's bodies appear more adolescent. uh, And there's kind of something creepily pedo about it. I I think I have a less sinister interpretation that people want to see things and sometimes pubic hair obscures. The you know the view of the clitoris, the view of the vulva, if there's a pubic hair, you 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 see less, and you you also see a lot of pubic hair removal in pornography that's just made for gay men. So I don't think it's necessarily a giant sexist pedo plot to turn women's bodies to to, to shape women's bodies look more like prepubescent girls. If all the guys in gay porn are doing it too, I think it's just about view. But the ubiquity of pornography and the way it can establish norms uh, is something that has to be factored in. Is it not?
7: So I agree with you, but I, you know, I think there's two ways to look at it. Is porn dictating the norm or is the norm dictating what we see in pornography? And, you know, I go to your hump film festival every year. I love it. And, um, one of the things that, you know, I'm going for lots of different reasons, but anybody <laughs> that I'm there with will hear me comment all the time on the different grooming practices. Because I won't say that it's necessarily ubiquitous, necessarily ubiquitous. I'm thinking about kind of the, the last festival um and how... One of the things I noticed, there was a film from the Pacific Northwest. It was a beautiful film. And it was, I think I probably voted it as like the best sex scene itself because it really, you know, was two people who really were engaged with each other. Um, and the woman in that film was completely ungroomed. Um, and then there was, I think, the, the video that won kind of some other award for best scene was this, you know, the group sex scene of everybody setting themselves on fire. And everybody was
3: completely groomed. Well, if you're going to set yourself on fire and you have a giant hairy bush, you're running an additional risk there.
7: I guess that's probably true. <laughs> the way that they were engaging in sex. There might've been some damage if there was a lot there. But my point of this is that even in your festival, you see, there's actually a huge variety. So I wouldn't say that, as, you know, I think probably mainstream porn definitely, but is it reflecting the norm that we have now created? Right. Because, or is it, or is it, creating the norm, and I'm going to say that I actually think it's reflecting what we want to see, and why we want to see that, I I don't actually have a great, you know, answer for. What, you know, what we find is that, you know, the, the reason that a lot of people groom is because they think it's, it's expected of them. So I would say who is creating that expectation and that the person who emailed you is a perfect example of someone who is, yeah, so right? I was just
3: going to say that. He's going in expecting. And he said, <laughs> you know, he claims that he's only recently after being sexually active for many, many decades, it sounds like I'm inferring, but he's older describes himself as a daddy, actually at one point of the letter that I didn't share. Uh, that that yeah. all of the women that he's encountered up until very recently were shaved, were, you know, weren't in a natural state. And that's just about perhaps the pool from which he was drawing his partners and not about a ubiquitous cultural norm.
7: I agree. I think that if he's a daddy, he's dating younger people, right? And so we know that younger people are much more likely to groom. And um, you know, and I have, you know, I think that, The idea of grooming, I I like that you mentioned kind of people seeing more because this idea of seeing more we actually think is what's driving this trend towards cosmetic genital surgery as well, Mm. Um, that, you know, we see women all the time who have dissatisfaction with their genital appearance. Um, and, and there's a a lot of thought that this really does have to do with the grooming practices. People are seeing so much more. And I've certainly had women come to me and say, this doesn't look normal. I am looking at myself and this doesn't look like what I'm seeing in this magazine or, you know, in this video, you know, and they just need my reassurance as a gynecologist. Again, we've seen thousands of vulvas. Or they're
3: being told by their male partners who've watched a great deal of porn that it's not like what they're used to seeing or what they've seen. (laughs)
7: You know, that's a good question. I don't think I've ever actually, or an interesting point, I've never seen someone who says my partner is not happy with my genital appearance. Oh, that's a relief. Yeah, it actually is. I mean, what I get a lot of is I don't have orgasms from intercourse. My partner told me their last 20 partners did. (laughs) And so now there's something wrong with me that I don't have orgasms from penetration. (laughs) That's a common one. That's a common one that I get.
3: Oh, yeah. I get that one all the time, too. I'm always having to walk guys through um, the disappointment of learning that the previous 20 partners were lying to them or 75% of those 20 partners were (laughs) lying to them. Um, Let's tackle quickly here now this guy's question. And and I almost hate putting this to you, but I'm going to. Is there a tactful way for me to suggest a woman shave or wax? uh, People have preferences around pubic hair. And, you know, if you're with somebody who prefers that you – Shave is that something that you could legitimately do for a partner to please them, uh, if you're aware of the risks, and a lot of people aren't informed about these risks—that it makes bacterial infections easier to get, that may desensitize the clitoris or the vulva, um, that it you know provides this cushion and this barrier that that you're removing, and uh, you'd be more vulnerable to all sorts of gnarly shit. Uh, but if somebody has a preference for it, is this something that a, a woman can or should ever consider doing to please a partner, male or female?
7: You know, this is where I could get attacked as being kind of an anti-feminist, but I think that we should all express our preferences um, as long as there isn't harm necessarily associated with it. Now, this is where it gets tricky here. Um, I, you know, if this is this person's preference, I, I don't think there's anything wrong with him having a preference. Um, the question is, how does he present that to a partner? Because, you know, body shaming is very real and you can create all kinds of very difficult dynamics in a relationship if someone suddenly becomes self-conscious of their practices or their appearance.
6: Mm -hmm.
7: Um, And you have to remember that, you know, this is not a super benign process necessarily. And I know people are doing it frequently every day, every week, but you know, depending on how they remove their pubic hair, you know, they can be prone to, Injury. So there's, you know, actually, you know, the group I did research with, you know, did a study showing that there's probably about over, you know, 1,700 presentations to the emergency department every year from, and this is to the emergency department, from grooming, um, mainly with razors, right? With, uh, with getting cuts or lacerations. And I've certainly seen young women who got waxed and it actually ripped off part of their lady, split it apart. Oh my God. Um, yeah. This is real. Like it this is not necessarily a benign process. And when we're talking about removing all the hair, it is incredibly painful um, to, you know, unless, you know, I think if you're using an electric razor, then you're going to be in better shape. But if you're getting really close to the skin, With, you know, a regular razor or an electric razor, or especially with waxing, and anyone who's done laser hair removal knows, this is not necessarily benign. So, you know, I say that this person can have their preference, but they have to understand what that means. I'm assuming that whoever he is, you know, with isn't grooming, she probably has her reasons for it, right? I don't think there's a single woman who hasn't thought about it.
3: Maybe people's attitude toward this should be, this is a treat for every once in a while not a state that someone should exist in in perpetuity. So they don't have to shave daily or weekly or get waxed once a week. But, you know, if you like occasionally being with somebody who has no (laughs) pubic hair, if, if, you know, the bald genitals, whether you're talking about penises or or vulvas, works for you, that maybe that's something that your partner can indulge you with every once in a while, but expecting your partner to live in that state constantly, 24-7, maybe that's too much.
7: You know, I, I hear that. The only the only caveat I would say is that when you remove all the hair, you're kind of exposing yourself to, you know, the pain, the cost, the discomfort. And then when it grows back, it's really irritating. Um, and so to kind of ask someone to do that, you know, frequently could also be kind of bothersome. Well, no, that's you what it, I, my like, point I, wasn't
3: do yes. it frequently. My point was every once in a while as a treat. Once in a while being once every six months, not once every six weeks or days.
7: Sure, sure, but you also then run the risk of when that person is not groomed, having you know significant body image issues or feeling like her partner's not as attracted to her. You know, so it's it's. I think there's a trade-off there. Right? You know, and it may be that people have really certain preferences for what turns them on. That it might be better. To you know, think about who. Again, I'm not going to say you should ever pick your partner based on their grooming practices, Um, but I also think it's fair to talk to somebody if you have a preference, but also really respect that they may have a preference not to, and then think about whether or not that it's that important to you um, to not be with somebody, and maybe explore. You know, does it really make that much of a difference? Is it just an aesthetic thing? I don't think it actually makes sex more pleasurable.
3: Well, it's certainly going to make sex less pleasurable if you're tearing off parts of labia and getting razor burns and like you're to get a bacterial infection and desensitizing the bits that you do not want desensitized. It'll make sex less pleasurable. I, I, I would hope everybody would be a little ambidextrous where this is concerned that, you know, you like it with, you like it without. Pussy's great. If you like pussy either way, I would hope. I certainly have appreciated <laughs> dicks with pubic hair and dicks without pubic hair. It can be done. I agree with that. Dr. Tammy Rowan, Assistant Professor in the Department of OBGYN at University of California, San Francisco. Thank you so much for jumping on the phone today. It was great talking with you. My pleasure. It was great
7: talking to
2: you too, Dan. Take care. All right, Dan. I have a question about how one would scramble one's DNA with someone and not live in the same place. I've heard you talk before about how different couples just aren't really good at living together and i personally think i'm not really very good at living with my partner who i super love and super want to to scramble my dna with but i personally maybe i'm really good at living alone or living with collectives but maybe not so good at living with my partner uh and i was wondering yeah if it would be possible for you just to talk about how it might be possible to have a child with the person you love and not live with that person? How would that look? How do I like, how do I be an active and engaged father? If I'm not in the same place, how do I share the load evenly? How do I, how do I do that?
3: Maybe it's that I was exposed to this kind of arrangement so many years ago that it doesn't seem like a big or complicated deal. Years and years ago, I visited Strasbourg, where uh, a city in France, uh, where my boyfriend at the time was studying. And he had rented a room, an apartment that this guy lived in. And the guy was married and had kids. But his wife and kids lived in an apartment in a building across the street. And they had their own spaces. And he knew himself to be someone who... Wouldn't do well with small children in the house who needed peace and quiet and a lot of downtime. And he was just honest about his preferred living arrangements, even after becoming a parent. And the woman he was with was down, liked having her own space, liked being able to shut the door at night and not have a man in there necessarily. Um, And the kids would bounce back and forth and it was just all very chill. And they had created an arrangement, made accommodations that worked for them. And that's all you have to do is be as clear with uh, your partner, your, the person you're contemplating scrambling your DNA together with, be as clear with them as you just were with me, that you don't think that you could live with a romantic and sexual partner, even though you would like to parent with your romantic and sexual partner, that you'd rather live alone, have two separate households, but spend a lot of time together. And you can definitely make that work. More people, I think, do that than Many people realize. Unfortunately, some people have to divorce to do that. Some people move in because that's what's expected of them. They realize that they just can't share a space. They've made some kids. They still love their partner, but they can't live with their partner. So They get a divorce. They get their own homes. And then they start getting along famously. There are even instances that I've heard of where people got a divorce, got their own apartments, We're continuing to co-parent and then remarried, but just didn't move back in with each other. That was the mistake. That was the problem in the relationship that the divorce solved. And they could have skipped the divorce and stayed married and got two separate apartments and lived happily ever after. It's an option for you as well. You just have to ask. Helps to know what it is you want, what will make you happy. You have the advantage of knowing.
8: Hi, Dan, Nancy, and the tech-savvy at-risk youth. I'm a late-30s bisexual woman living on the East Coast, and I'm wondering if you can tell me if I'm close to being a super, super shitty person right now. So, I've had this guy friend for a long time, and we've always had a sexual chemistry, When we met, he was married. Eventually, they opened up their marriage, and I got lucky enough to play with both of them, both together and separately. They ended up getting a divorce, and while it paused for a little while, the sexual chemistry on both sides did eventually lead to us continuing our sexual connections individually. Yay! So here's where the issue comes in. A few years ago, that guy friend of mine started a monogamous relationship with a really nice girl, and they're engaged with plans to get married in a few months. And he is very, very, very much sexting me these days. I really do consider myself an ethical, non-monogamous slut, and I happen to know that he doesn't have any sort of open agreement with his fiance. We've talked about it in conversations where I've really encouraged him to be honest with himself and accept that a non-monogamous relationship would really work best for him, but he's always resisted the idea. Being aware of how often he tends to break his monogamous commitments, I can't help but think that maybe he has a cheating kink and actually prefers being in monogamous relationships so that he can enjoy the cheating. Anyway, he's sexting me, and I am very, very extremely haven't been touched by a man in months kind of horny, and I am super conflicted. On one hand, he's engaged and in a monogamous relationship. On the other hand, I'm a safe person for him to sext with. For one, we're nowhere near each other. And secondly, neither of us have any interest in being in a romantic relationship with the other person. Basically, there's no moving beyond sexting. And right now, the thought of sexting is really, really attractive. So... If I move past the coy flirtation and actually join him in the raunchy sexting he's trying to initiate, am I a seriously shitty person or does the situation warrant any sort of pass?
3: I don't know if your situation warrants a pass or would get a pass from everybody, but I'm going to give you a pass. You do seem like a safe outlet for this guy who is obviously not cut out for monogamous relationships. I would encourage you to not just sext with him, but also in between the sexting, maybe do a little arguing and advocating, not for his fiance, but for himself, for for this dude. Like, why are you doing this? Why are you entering into a monogamous commitment that, at least in spirit you're already violating. At least with you, he's already violating it in spirit. You don't know if he's violating it indeed with others. You may not be the only woman he's sexting with or sexing with who isn't his fiancée. And asking him as a condition of continuing to sex or not, not as an explicit condition. You don't say I will continue to sex with you so long as we have this conversation, but you can have the sexting with him and that outlet for you that you would enjoy right now, that kind of attention that you're not getting virtually, if not physically while then just engaging him about your concerns about the mistake that he's making or the betrayals that he is setting his future wife up for, which doesn't seem fair, doesn't seem smart, seems to be setting his wife up, his future wife up for heartbreak and the marriage itself up for failure because people get caught. You know, there are a lot of serial cheaters out there who haven't gotten caught yet, and they think because they haven't gotten caught yet, they will never get caught. And they tend to get more reckless over time. So even if he's never gotten caught before the lesson he should take from that isn't that I will never get caught ever and I will get away with it. And what she doesn't know won't hurt her, but I am going to get caught and then everything's going to come tumbling out. And this person that I professed to love and made this commitment to is going to be pushed through a wood chipper emotionally. And that's not cool or fair. So yeah, I guess I'm telling you to go ahead and commit the sin so long as you do the penance, so long as you, confront this guy about his bullshit while you enjoy his sexts and the attention and hopefully your attentions are preventing him from seeking somebody else's actual physical attention at this moment. And maybe the conversation you're going to have with him will bring him to his senses, which is not to end the engagement or leave this woman. But if he knows himself to be incapable of honoring a monogamous commitment, then by God, he shouldn't make one.
0: Hey, Dan. So I've been with my husband for six years, married for three. We've been strictly monogamous for the entirety of the relationship. He's in his close to mid 40s and I am in my early 30s. So lately I've been curious. I've been wanting to experiment with other men and even women, which I've never done. I don't know. I feel like I'm more open-minded sexually than I was before. And I don't know if it's, Because I've grown more and learned more about myself, but it is what it is. And I would love to test out, like, opening up the relationship. However, I know that it is not his mentality at all, like, whatsoever. Especially now with the pandemic, I find myself, like, fantasizing more about other men and women, like, a lot. And I haven't felt sexually satisfied with my husband for some time now. And we've had the conversation, but nothing has really improved in that aspect of our relationship. So I feel like I've been keeping this secret from him, from him, and I want to be honest with him, but I do not know how to start that conversation.
3: Often when people say, I don't know how to start this conversation, what people mean is, how do I have this conversation without conflict? How do we have this conversation without it turning into a potential relationship extinction level event, that kind of enormous fight. And you can't, you can't have this conversation without risking the end of the relationship because what you're asking your husband to do is to renegotiate the terms of your marriage, renegotiate your marriage contract. And he may decide rather than having an open relationship, being in an open marriage, that he'd rather not be married to you at all, if that's what you want. And that is what you want, not to not be married to him, but to have an open relationship, to be able to explore your interests in other men and other women and have more sexual adventures and a more satisfying sex life. And it really is a kind of binary choice. It's a binary choice that some people make for their spouses without informing them by cheating but if you want to be an ethical person, if you want to practice ethical non-monogamy, you have to have this conversation, start this conversation. And there's no way to avoid the argument if your husband isn't initially into it. Talk about PUDs a lot on this show, people who are poly or open, under distressed, PUDs, poly, under Distress and some people do agree to open a relationship to save it because they'd rather, you know, give their partner permission to sleep with other people instead of losing their partner. If that's the choice, allow me to do this or I'm going to divorce you. Some people will allow their partners to do it and they are unhappy about it. Polly under duress, unhappy. And you often meet happily poly people who were puds at first, who were poly underdressed initially but came around. That could be how this plays out. You also meet a lot of single people whose partners were initially poly under and then decided to divorce their asses. Last thing I want to say, you say that you know that your partner wouldn't be into an open relationship. Do you know that or do you assume that? A lot of people allow their partners, allow their spouses to think that they would never be, never want to have an open relationship, would never want to touch anyone else themselves because that's what good people think. That's what they're expected to to think. And that is the default assumption that people make about their spouses that, you know, I want an open relationship and I've never told my partner that, but my partner who's never told me they would want an open relationship obviously doesn't want an open relationship. Otherwise they would have told me, well, you haven't told your partner that this is what you want. You may be surprised by your partner's reaction. Maybe it's what he wants too. Doesn't happen that often, but it does happen sometimes where the person comes in with the Open or out the we're opening this relationship or it's over ultimatum and rather than get the pushback or argument they expected rather than it becoming a relationship extinction level event the person that they've issued the ultimatum to nods and agrees and it is the end of the conflict over sex in the marriage rather than the beginning of the conflict about sex and the marriage All right, before we get to your response calls, let's read your tweets. First, before we read the tweets, I want to thank Punk Max, who tweeted about getting a Magnum subscription after listening to the show for 10 years. Thank you, Max, and welcome to the Magnum. Gal tweets to the caller whose partner keeps sending her unwanted dick pics inconveniently while she's at work on her phone. Have him send dick emails instead. She can look at them when she's ready and when she's at home. She can even tell him her weekly faves. No blowing up her phone at work required. Good advice. Lesbro tweets to the caller asking about wax play in episode 712. Those dollar store Jesus candles are made with the same safety wax as the type you find in sex store candles. Bonus points if you have a Catholic fetish. Catholic fetishes are less common, in my opinion, than Catholics with fetishes. All that staring up at the hot, ripped dude on the cross during your formative years can make you think, I wonder what that would feel like, but maybe without the nails. But this is a great money-saving tip. Avoid the kink tax at the sex toy shop by buying the Jesus candles at the bodega. But please test the wax first to make sure it is cool, melting wax by dripping it on the sensitive skin of your wrist before you drip it onto the sensitive skin of your sub. Penn Quinin tweets, Just Caught Hump's Greatest Hits Volume 1, Living Far from the U.S. I Never Thought I'd Get to See Hump. It Didn't Disappoint. Thanks for streaming to those of us in distant places. Well, thank you for watching, and thanks again to all the filmmakers and performers. Hump was all about doing porn in theaters, not putting anything online, getting people together to watch porn the way their grandparents used to, in the dark, sitting next to a stranger in a movie theater. This is a big step for us, streaming Hump online. It was the only way for us to bring the 15th Annual Hump Tour to people, and it's been going great. And we are really thrilled about all the people who've always wanted to see Hump but couldn't because they didn't live in a city where Hump played but can now enjoy Hump online. And we hope everyone submits films this year so we can keep adding films to Hump's Greatest Hits and have a 16th Annual Hump Film Festival Online or, fingers crossed, in theaters this fall, go to humpfilmfest.com and click on Submit for information about making and submitting your film to Hump. All right. If you want me to read your tweet on an upcoming episode of the Savage Lovecast, be sure to include the hashtag Savage Lovecast. And now your response calls.
10: Hi, I'm calling in response to the man in episode 712 who wanted to know if it's okay to have two sets of rules for him and his fiance for their open relationship. I was disappointed in your response, Dan. I've been in both the swinging and poly communities for years. And in my opinion, this is not okay. There are cuckold relationships, yes, where inequality is the point. But that's not what's happening with this couple. It was clear from his call that his fiancé does want the same freedom that he has. And he mentioned that she says, we'll get you there when they discuss it. And she's probably just being patient and understanding, as a woman usually is, But he didn't seem to take any ownership or even have any awareness of his own insecurity, nor does he express any concern for her needs. So to me, this is a red flag for a controller. Just because a couple is open doesn't mean that controlling behavior can't happen. I see it all the time, and it's almost always the man who perpetrates it. Your response enables that type of double standard and made it seem like it's okay, but it's not.
9: Hi, Dan.
6: I was just calling in response to the woman on episode 712 whose partner wouldn't stop sending her dick pics. Uh, While I liked your advice, another thing that I had thought of was to break him of the habit, she should be responding with disgusting pictures from her end that might make him want to stop sending her dick pics, whether they be unflattering pictures of herself or... You know, disgusting STD type pictures she found out on the internet. Just something to say, oh, here's something that I can assault your eyes with, much like you keep doing to me.
11: To the woman in episode 712 who was feeling insecure about her partner's viewing habits on Twitch, I'm a 43 year old fat, bisexual, homo romantic lady whose physical ideal is older fat ladies. I, however, have a thing for ASMR videos. If you don't know what they are, look it up. They are intensely relaxing and erotic to me, but they are overwhelmingly performed by young, white, thin performers. This has zero to do with my preferences, and is all about the lack of diversity on these streaming platforms. Your partner's viewing may have way more to do with what is available than his preferences is my point. Please don't stress out too much that he's watching Twitch video streamers that have different bodies than yours. 99% of live streamers seem to be young, white, and thin right now. Tell him to turn that monitor around, however. There's no reason you need to be seeing these live streams. If you want to see bodies like yours, please create a Twitch account and start streaming. I would love to see that.
3: And we're going to leave it there. 206-302-2064 is the number here at the Savage Lovecast. If you want to record a question or comment for a future show, give us a buzz. 206-302-2064. Better yet, use the voice memo app on your phone to record your question and then email it to us at voicemail at savagelovecast.com. Better sound quality with those voice memos. We really appreciate everyone who's been emailing us. Their questions. This weekend, we're live streaming Hump's Greatest Hits Volume One, a compilation of my favorite films from 2005 to 2018. There's a European screening time and an American screening time, so go to humpfilmfest.com to find the showing that works best for you and your schedule. Buy your tickets. A dollar from every ticket sold to Hump's Greatest Hits collection is going towards the Black Lives Matter movement. And now is the perfect time, again, for you to make your own film for Hump. So go to humpfilmfest.com slash submit and learn how to make a film and win the big cash prizes. that we get out. Follow me on Twitter at Fake Dan Savage. She hasn't been a guest on the show, but I think you should follow Kishana Cauley on Twitter at Kishana Cauley. She is hilarious and very smart and one of the Twitter all-stars and she deserves to have more followers than I do. Please go follow Kishana. The Savage Lovecast is produced every week by Nancy Hartunian and me and the Tech Savvy at Risk Youth. And Nancy, we'll all be back at you next week for our installment of the Savage Lovecast. Thank you for that.